Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. If that sounds like the sort of thing you can extract value from, why not head over to onenightinproduct.com where you can sign up to the mailing list, subscribe on your favorite podcast app, or follow the podcast on social media and guarantee you never miss another episode again. On tonight's episode, we talk about pricing and packaging and all the different ways we might try to realize the value of our products, charge a price that's not too high, not too low, but just about right, kind of like if Goldilocks worked in SaaS. We talk about the pros and cons of the various different pricing models, when you should use them, and what happens when you get pricing wrong. There's also a possibly controversial take on one of the cornerstones of product-led growth, the much-loved and recommended freemium model, why you probably shouldn't use it, and what we might do instead. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Dan Balkowski. Dan's a product strategist, pricing expert, and dance student who once travelled the world on his own for 18 months, which means he either loves his own company or the dancing product strategists don't get invited on too many holidays. Dan's first job was a golf caddy, but these days he's aiming to be the Jack Nicholas of SaaS pricing and packaging, and he's running a consultancy to help with just that, taking a swing with his nine iron at some of the pricing illusions dominating high-volume B2B SaaS. Hi, Dan. How are you tonight? Hey, Jason. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for our conversation. Yeah, me too. Should be good. And I also should emphasize I know absolutely nothing about golf. So I don't know if you're going to hit those illusions far or not very far. So first things first, you're the founder and chief pricing officer at Product Tranquility. So what problem does Product Tranquility solve? Yeah, Jason, we help B2B SaaS CEOs define pricing and packaging for new products. All right. So you're the chief pricing officer. Uh, a pricing and packaging consultancy. So is that just you or do you have like a chief packaging officer as well? It's just me at the moment, although I do bring on help for delivery from time to time as the projects require it. Right. So what sort of help would that be then? Like, do you need to bring in people to actually work on some of the pricing and the packaging specifically, or is it more about sort of execution and sort of subcontractors to get some of that, as you say, execution, but like some of the actual implementation of that out and, and embedded within the companies? So most of our work is at the strategy level. And so that requires a lot of research, research on data inside of the company, as well as market data, whether that's competitive analysis, pricing research with prospects or existing customers. And so I'll bring on folks to help with some of those research aspects as I get busy. Oh, fair enough. And obviously, you know, the chief pricing officer can't do all the work, right? And what sort of companies are you working for? I mean, different types of company, I guess, have different pricing and packaging problems, right? So are you mainly working for early startups or pre-product market fit? Or are you working with late startups, scale-ups or established companies, big enterprises, or just all of those people? Ideally, we work with high volume B2B SaaS firms that are about 10 to 50 million in revenue. But I've worked with startups as small as 5 million in revenue to $15 billion market cap public companies. Many of those established companies are facing very different problems. A lot of them are traditional on-premises software and are trying to move to a subscription model and struggling with how to do that. Right. So you're very much looking at that subscription, ongoing recurring revenue thing rather than, for example, trying to work out pricing for package services and stuff like that as well. Like, Is it exclusively subscription model stuff? So I have a background in both perpetual software as well as subscription. 
what I classify those, and we probably talk about a little bit more later, is those are what I would refer to as pricing models, otherwise referred to as monetization models or business models. The other popular one that's big in the software space these days is a pay-as-you-go model, sort of a utility yeah. billing model. Yeah. And there's hybrid versions of, of each of those. And what sort of products then are you working out that pricing for? I mean, subscription tends to suppose SaaS, and obviously you're saying that you're taking a swing at high volume B2B SaaS pricing. So is it just SaaS products and is it just SaaS products that don't have a pricing strategy yet? Or are you also kind of coming in and helping ones that do have a pricing strategy, but maybe it's not working out very well and that you need to come and fix? What I see is normally when companies start, they need to put together some sort of pricing. But pricing, I would say before you hit 10 million in revenue is not the most important lever in your (laughs) growth toolbox. You really at that stage should be focusing on actually creating value, creating something customers want, definitely charging them something. Where companies I work with tend to have a challenge where I get brought in is they have established their initial product and are now looking at adding maybe a second product, maybe a set of add-on modules. Maybe they've acquired another company. Maybe they're looking at serving a new target market segment. It's at that stage where they realize their existing pricing strategy isn't going to work or they can't just, yeah. a simple pricing change won't make you know, the, the impact that they hope for. And they decide to be a little bit more rigorous about the approach. That's usually where my clients come to me. Yeah, that's interesting. That kind of concept of a portfolio approach to pricing as well. So sort of going in there and making sure that everything hangs together and that it's all consistent internally. And I think that it's fair to say that there are many companies out there that seem to have quite a lot of difficulty with this. So maybe we'll talk a little bit about you know some of the ways you can help with that difficulty. Maybe they can even phone you up afterwards and see if you can. But pricing sounds really simple conceptually, right? I've got a product. You know, I want to sell it. You know, it costs me a certain amount to build. Presumably, I know roughly how much other people pay for that sort of product. If there's other competitors that are in the space that have got public pricing, I could probably just pick a price similar to that, see if people buy it. I guess you're saying that we can't really do that. That we can't really just make it up as we go along, and we have to be very purposeful about that. Is is that fair to say? I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> when it comes to SaaS pricing. Most executives think what you charge will determine your success. In fact, who and how you charge determines your success. And so one of the first decisions that you need to make is what is the overall philosophy or pricing orientation your company follows when it comes to pricing? And there's three basic pricing orientations. And companies usually follow them in this order, which is a cost-based pricing approach, yeah. otherwise a target markup pricing, competitor-based pricing, and then value-based pricing. And value-based pricing is this holy grail North Star. It's a destination (laughs) never to be reached, but always to be strived for. But that's usually how companies progress. And there are pros and cons to each. So why don't we talk a little bit about some of those pricing models and and, and maybe some of the pros and cons of each then? Because, yeah, as you say, and as I've kind of been taught as I grew up, value-based is kind of, as we say, like the holy grail, right? It's it's the way where you, you can go out there and really charge a fair price for the value that you're giving. But what are, say, some of the disadvantages, for example, of a company pursuing a cost plus model, for example? And I guess for our listeners, what is a cost plus model in case they've never done pricing before? Yeah, so a cost plus model is the simplest orientation to pricing. So what you do is you look at your cost of goods sold, your COGS, and then you say, we want to achieve a certain 
gross margin percentage based upon those cogs. So you have some markup that you apply. So we want to have an 80% gross margin. Our cost of goods sold is X. And so I have a 5X you know, markup on the, my, my cost of goods sold to get my price. It's a relatively simple pricing method and relatively clear cut. The data is usually easily available within the firm. And it's beneficial because it can help you set a price floor, which yeah. below your pricing would be unprofitable and you'd go out of business. And it's ultimately not a bad place to start because it does at least give you a way to cover your, your expenses. However, the primary drawback is that your customers don't really care about your costs. I've never bought a piece of software <laughs> and asked the vendor, how many hours of engineering time did it cost you to build this piece of software? Like It's completely irrelevant to me. There's no consideration in that model of a customer's willingness to pay or their perceived value of the product. And it doesn't take your competition into account when devising pricing. So then there's competition-based pricing, which to me sounds like you're basically just going to look at your competitors, like I said in my stupid example, and just charge either roughly the same as them or try and undercut them a bit. Like, Is that what that type of pricing means to you, or is it a bit more nuanced than that? The idea with competition-based pricing is you're looking at the other competitors that do the job that you're trying to accomplish for customers. And so like cost-based pricing, it could be a relatively straightforward exercise, especially if you're in more of a blue ocean market with transparent pricing, your competitors have pricing that's publicly available. And it could be a good step at helping to determine baseline pricing and understand where you provide differential value. But the major problem is almost no CEO would ever give their direct competitors control over their demand generation or their product <laughs> strategy. So this assumes your competitors have done their homework, know what they're doing, and it gives your competitors yeah. control of your pricing, which is a huge lever for your business. It also implies your target customer is evaluating the same competitive set and that those competitive products are directly comparable. There's often even in very competitive software markets, a, still a high amount of differentiation between products. It still doesn't consider customer willingness to pay. And if you're in a market where there's opaque pricing, where there's, you know, this can happen much more in enterprise, it can be challenging to know what your underlying competitive pricing is reliable or not. Yeah, for sure. And actually, one of the things that when, as you were speaking, I was thinking about, and you kind of touched on it yourself, is this idea that if you've got, say, six companies that are competing with each other in a market, and none of them have done their pricing homework. They could all be basically charging just nonsense pricing and driving each other's prices into even further levels of nonsense because none of them actually did their job properly. I mean, is that a dynamic that you've seen in your career when you've been consulting with people? We call that herding, where <laughs> everyone is just following each other and nobody's actually leading until a big bad wolf comes and the whole pack runs in maybe off the cliff, which is not <laughs> ideal. But what is the big bad wolf in that analogy? Is it like another competitor that comes in and does it properly? Or is it just the crushing pressure of the market and you know, their cost base kind of taken over? So at a high level, right, you haven't considered your customer's willingness to pay. So the hidden wolf is that you're leaving potential profitability on the table, yeah, which nobody wants to do. <laughs> Remember that it's illegal to have tacit or explicit collusion with like competitors on pricing. A cartel. Yeah, you don't want that uh, unless you're OPEC. <laughs> Hopefully I don't end up on a list somewhere because I said that. But <laughs> in general, you know what the problem then is, is you're 
potentially looking at or missing you know disruptive competitors who are going to come after you you know eat your lunch as well you know from below and so that happens all the time in, in software as well so it can really again keep your focus on the the wrong overall goal right your your goal should be pricing yeah. for long-term profitability and that is assessment of the competition you have today the competition you're going to have in the future as well as you know what your customers are willing to pay in the value and making sure that you're capturing fair value for your product yeah, I think it's really interesting and you've touched on it a little bit, the kind of concept of the competitive set and the job to be done and what you're actually competing against as well, because it's not always just those other five companies, right? But maybe we'll come back to that again in a bit, because I know that you're pretty keen on sort of jobs to be done as a methodology. But before we do go on to that, just to finish off the trio, like when we're talking about value-based pricing, the holy grail, what should people consider? Like, what is that for people and, and why should they go that way? So value-based pricing is aligning your pricing to capture a fair amount of the value that you create for your customers. And it's customer focused. It gives you control of your pricing versus ceding it to your competitors. And just generally, most research supports it's a superior way to set pricing. There are trade-offs. It does require an overall internal organizational orientation towards this pricing philosophy. It demands deep understanding of your market and customer segments via research which can be more costly in terms of time and money. And it often feels a bit fuzzier to managers where there's not necessarily a one right price yeah. versus if I give you here, here's 10 competitors, we'll just price right in the average of all of them. That feels somehow more scientific than asking a bunch of customers about their willingness to pay and then setting pricing based upon that. But if you've got those 10 competitors and they're all charging x and you go out and you work out that the value of the product that you're selling or the job that you're doing is five times x or something like that then obviously from a value-based pricing perspective you probably want to go and charge a lot closer to that 5x right because that's the actual value that you're replacing like maybe you don't get all the way there but you certainly want to be in that neighborhood as we kind of discussed earlier to get the maximum profitability out of the transaction but you've still got this gravity of the other nine companies that are presumably trying to offer something fairly similar that haven't done their homework. So they're charging more of a, say, maybe commodity type price. Like how can you, if you go out there and even if you decided that the value of what you're offering is actually worth 5X, how can you get away from those Xs and actually try and get people to buy you? Because surely the human nature is just going to be these companies are just going to go and try and buy stuff from the cheap people. There's a whole bunch of uh, ideas wrapped up into that question. And so I think the <laughs> The first thing is you don't necessarily, you know, there's not any buyer that is omniscient, that has full <laughs> understanding of every option available in the marketplace. Yeah. Uh, the economists refer that as homo economicus. They make perfectly <laughs> rational decisions. They have full insight into every option available to them. They've researched every nook and cranny of, of all those options and make the 100% rational decision. So that's point one. Point two you've brought up a good segue in that there's this concept of economic value. So economic value is the idea that you cannot charge the full use value or utility, as economists would call it, for your product. You can only price, you only have pricing power for differentiated value. Yeah. So when we're talking about competition. The idea is the market will set a price for non-differentiated value and you have to respect that. What you're trying to look at is where do we 
either positively or negatively differentiate from our competition and look at that adjustment to overall economic value from there and then use that as a first step in understanding what is our overall range that we're able to price in. So yeah, you if if you're non-differentiated, you're going to have a very difficult time in <laughs> setting a 5x price. But I think it the third point and it's inherent in one of the reasons why the value-based pricing approach is so difficult. It requires an entire orientation of the company. And that goes to not only the managers that are responsible for setting the prices, but marketing and being able to clearly articulate that value proposition, and as well as sales to be able to justify that price point with prospects. And what we're getting at there is the transition between the concept of economic value to perceived value. So the perceived value is oftentimes less than your overall economic value. So you know, we may be able to justify you know, from an economic case, you know, we can charge 2x the competition, but you know, there are things like trust, the yeah. understanding that the prospect has of other alternatives, and is there a risk premium or a risk discount associated with our ability to actually deliver that value, as well as our sales and marketing organizations to clearly communicate that value in order to influence a perceived value. So what are some of the symptoms then of poorly executed pricing or packaging like? I mean, you could probably assume that some would be either no sales or too many sales, but uh, not enough money, your revenue declining, eventual bankruptcy. Like These are all things that would be kind of knock-on effects from getting your pricing wrong for too long. But are there any signals that you might look out for when you're working with a company that kind of give an early warning signal to say, actually, yeah, this is something that's not working for you and, and this is why? So number one, and this happens a lot, is when companies come to me with a spreadsheet and all we're talking about is margins, Yeah. then I understand that they're looking at a cost-based approach and there's huge opportunity to reorient them to the overall market. So that's number one. Number two would be things like if your offer configurations or bundles, in most B2B SaaS, you have this concept of a good, better, best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there should be a not necessarily even split between all of those packages, but if you have one or two of those packages that's not selling anything, you've got a problem. There should be some amount of fair distribution among those packages. I would not necessarily rely on prospects telling you your pricing is wrong uh, (laughs) because that information is going to be highly biased. No buyer. Well, actually, I have heard of cases where customers have said, after a purchase, I would have paid you 10 times more for this. So maybe you (laughs) want to listen to that. But generally, what you'll hear, especially from sales folks, is that our pricing is too high Yeah, because there's always an incentive for a prospect to tell a salesperson, hey, your pricing is too high. That very well may be the case and should be treated as a signal, but should not be treated as honest truth. The flip side, if you're not hearing from anyone that your pricing is too high. That is a problem. <laughs> <laughs> you should be raising your prices to the point where you are getting some feedback from the market that your prices are too yeah. high. This reminds me of the old, well, I don't know if it's old, but the Van Westendorp pricing technique where you've kind of got the concept of too high because it, you, know, you start to not want to pay for it, but too low and you start to doubt its quality, right? So it's not that if it's quite the same, but it kind of rhymes with that a little bit. It feels this whole idea that, you want to get some signals each way, right? Correct. 
But I'm assuming that we can't just, you know, we've already said we can't just make this up as we go along. So are there any kind of concrete steps? Is there like a three-step plan, ABC, do this, execute it, and then that's your pricing? Like, what's that process look like for you? What do you go in and help these companies do and, and some of the steps that you would advise that they go through to actually understand where their pricing should be? I have a four-part model for... A uh, four-part, three-part, huh? You know. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I added one more part. I hope, I hope that's okay. <laughs> I've got a four-part model for understanding uh, B2B SaaS pricing. So it starts with understanding your customer segments. The core truth is that you cannot build a product for everyone. Yeah. Your customers are... Your market is, is heterogeneous and they will value different things. And so understanding the customer segments that exist in your market is step one. That falls into two other buckets, which is value and competition. So the value that each of those segments experiences from your product will be different because customers have different levels of importance on different value drivers. Match that to each of those segments potentially have different competitive alternatives that they may be using. And I take a very jobs to be done approach when thinking about competition So most B2B SaaS companies are not necessarily competing with the startup down the street, but email and spreadsheets. Excel every time, right? Exactly. And understanding what those competitive alternatives are, again, going back to our conversation on economic value, we'll understand what is your differentiated value given the, if you didn't exist, what would your customers do in the marketplace? Those three sections, you could think of as research inputs to your overall pricing strategy. Your pricing strategy encompasses things like, okay, given the segments that exist, those relevant competitive alternatives to those segments, the value created for each of those, which is the segments that we want to target? How are we going to position ourselves in the market given our differentiated value? What is our overall pricing strategy? What is the metric we're trying to optimize? Is that revenue, market share, profit, gross margin? And then making the price packaging decisions. So those would be like price metrics, your bundles, offers, configurations, all of those feeding into that final strategy component. Yeah, that sounds fair enough. And then the output of that, I guess, then is used to what literally drive the numbers that, you, that you're going to put on your website or that you're going to put in your, in your sales team's hands? Like, is that the ultimate output of this? Like, how does that become actionable? So there's a set of activities that are involved in any pricing study. So the first is overall alignment. What is the overall objective? What are we trying to achieve with our pricing? What is it that we know about our existing customer segments? Or what do we think we know about our existing customer segments? And what are the hypotheses we have about potential pricing and packaging approaches? Then you'll go through a set of research activities. And those could be direct qualitative discussions with prospects or customers, competitive analysis, pricing-based surveys, and then bringing that data back into the organization to refine your hypotheses and then move on to the next stage. You may do several iterations of that, followed by some amount of financial modeling, making sure that you know the packaging, et cetera, that you've come up with, how does that affect potentially existing customers you know, in a transition? How does that affect different customer usage patterns? Right? Is there, are there places where those break? So it's a set of you know, hypothesis generation, alignment, research, and then testing, and then eventually an implementation. But it's interesting talking about packaging, actually, because one thing I've seen around and about in my travels is like you talked about this good, better, best type approach, or maybe even 
free good better best or free good better best enterprise and the different configurations of product packaging that you can have but some people almost seem to go for a car configurator or something like you can just pick absolutely anything you want always different configurations get a price out of that and then that's what you then eventually pay once you've worked that all out and hopefully it all hangs together properly do you think that that's a good thing to do when people have maybe more complicated products or do you think that that packaging is still crucial in that situation and that they should try and keep it as simple as they can so the idea of good bundles or offer configurations is to streamline your go-to-market motion reduce your customer acquisition costs so yeah you're allowing customers to self-select into the option that is most relevant to them allow your sales team to have directed conversations without presenting a Chinese menu of a thousand options. So most cars, at least here in the US, right? maybe there's a, a base package, there's the sport package, there's the luxury package, where each of those has a bundle of features. right? And, and I don't necessarily yeah. as a consumer need to line by line understand each of those features, but just say, oh yeah, the sport package sounds like you know, my style or the base package, it sounds like my style or whatever it might be. And so it allows customers to more quickly self-select without needing to understand value of each individual line item. And most B2B software products have this exact problem where you may have, you know, even for a relatively simple application, you might have a hundred features you could enumerate. And in a sales conversation, there's no way your sales team wants to explain the value of each and every one of those features. But there's going to be specific features at each package that drives the move between the upgrade path of each of those features. That's fair enough. But on the topic of packaging, I mean, I saw on LinkedIn that you've said something along the lines of freemium pricing is, quote unquote, almost always a bad idea. Now, in these days of product-led growth and all the books and blog posts that you see about that, that's a fairly spicy statement. Is that something you can back up with facts? And if so, why is it a bad idea? One of my favorite topics. Thank you, Jason. So <laughs> I actually got my start in the pricing world when I went to business school. I got my MBA. I, took, I was actually lucky. I didn't realize this until after the fact, but most even business schools don't have pricing classes. And we could talk about the downside of taking pricing classes as well and, <laughs> when you get to the real world of pricing. But my internship, I worked for a very successful Silicon Valley startup and they were facing a challenge. Their go-to-market model relied on several very large partners who, that they sold through. And one of the partners had pushed them, they required them to have a freemium offering based upon that partner's yeah. positioning in the market. They wanted to be the low cost player. And so they were pushing all their vendors to have a freemium model. So the question on the table was, should we do this for the rest of our offerings? And so I spent a good chunk of that summer digging into the ins and outs of freemium model. And I found out that it's mostly a terrible idea. <laughs> Most of the reasons people propose a freemium model can be better answered with a 14 to 30 day free trial. Freemium causes a bunch of problems internally. Number one, it's difficult to move customers from free. You have this problem called the, <laughs> called the penny gap, which is I'm paying nothing to get you to whip out your credit card and pay something is still a large motion. It's not yeah. necessarily any easier than if they just came in as a cold prospect. 
coupled with executives are constantly tempted by the illusion of this pool of free customers that we could potentially convert into paying customers. Now, best in class, best in class freemium companies convert one to 3% of free users. <laughs> so you're looking at you know this pool of 99% of users that are not paying you. And now as every company does, you're tapping out your growth avenues, your channels, you're looking for easy wins. You're like, well, we should put more energy into trying to make these free people convert. But the truth is it's going to be a lot of wasted energy. Most of those people will never convert. Yeah. Also, it creates an internal tax on every feature you develop. Now, every feature needs to go through this goat rodeo of should this be on the free side or the pay side? Do we put a little <laughs> bit on the free side? So every feature you now want to build has to go through that discussion. And I think there's a pernicious narrative going on in the market right now that if you do freemium, it improves your CAC metrics, your customer acquisition cost metrics. Yeah. And it may look better, but that's usually only because R&D investment isn't usually included in marketing expense, which it should be. It, so you're basically just playing games with the income statement by saying that. So you're shifting money from R&D into marketing with this little this little move. <laughs> and so it looks like your customer acquisition costs are getting better, but you know, it's actually not. You know, that's all to say why I wouldn't recommend it. To be a viable option, you really need an incredibly large market. So if you're only planning on converting one to three percent of those, you literally need a potential market of like millions of customers in order to make it make sense. Yeah. Sometimes there are specific competitive environments where it can make sense. I would use the example back in the day, uh, the company Evernote was was shown yeah. as the sort of the darling of freemium, but they had a major problem, which is the Microsoft has OneNote, which they gave away for free, and so. In order for Evernote to have a viable go-to-market model, they were sort of forced into a position of having a freemium offering. Now, I haven't talked to Phil Lubin about this, but I'm pretty sure from the outside, that's exactly what the situation was. Most companies aren't in that position where they have one of the giants of the industry giving something away for free. <laughs> it can be useful in for, for developer-focused products where, for example, if I'm a developer doing a lot of development in my development environment or staging environment, it's not a production environment. That development process for me to see value and finish that feature I'm, I'm in integrating, that might be a six to 12 month cycle for me to build that. And so yeah. you know, I want to have you know, that availability, but I'm, it's not like I have the capability to then run it in production. And I think the other area is you know, something like Slack, where you have a social product, where you know, there's no fun showing up to a Slack group where that no one else is in. <laughs> or maybe maybe it is if you really dislike Slack. But Well, you did go on holiday on your own for 18 months. So Exactly. Exactly. So in those cases where you need a mass of people to all be there at the same time in order to have something valuable, then it can work. But I think those are very limited cases. And most of the excuse, again, most of these problems can be solved with a, with a free trial. So the, the whole underlying concept behind the free trial or freemium is Software is what's called a experience good, which means my perception of the value changes as I use the product. But like I said, if you have a free trial, you can get that same you know, overall benefit. Well, I'll get the product-led growth people out and we'll see if we can get a fight going after this. And have you ever in your time got pricing really wrong in your career? Like, has there been any situations where you look back on and you just think, 
Yeesh, that was a bad one. And if so, what happened? There are a few that come to mind. I mentioned before, you know, I looked, I had taken some pricing classes in business school, and one of them was really focused on how uh, retailers use promotion and pricing. Like, so if you're going to the grocery store and buying orange juice, for example, how does changing the pricing of orange juice, is it on promotion? What size containers do you have? Or are competitors uh, running different promotions? Those all rely on an extreme amount of market data that you just don't have in the software space. So it's almost impossible in B2B software to establish the demand curve, right? The if you read your economics textbook, it's simple, right? Set <laughs> set your pricing where marginal revenue equals marginal cost, problem solved. Uh, the problem is in reality, actually figuring out what the demand curve looks like is nearly impossible. And there's a lot of other drawbacks of, of using market data. So I've gone down that route uh, when I was first doing pricing in the wild as an operator, trying to look at transactional data to do that same type of analysis. And it just ended up in sadness and tears. <laughs> I did, the, the, did the company survive? <laughs> the company, the company did survive. The company did survive. I think the the other, uh, this was a, a slightly uh, a different a different project that was at the same company, which was not understanding value first. You can't, yeah. you know, innovate price on a bad product to turn it into a good product. If you don't really <laughs> understand where the value is in a product, it doesn't matter how much you make the pricing attractive. It's not really going to solve your problem. And then I think this is a, a, a wide ranging issue for all market research, but a lot of the pricing uh, research, if you're doing surveys, relies on you know, market panels. Uh, so these yeah. groups of people that will take surveys, et cetera. And you know, the current state of that is a cesspool of fraud. <laughs> so you need to be very careful when doing market surveys into panels. Uh, I've gotten burned by that yeah. before where you know you think you're surveying IT decision makers and you're really getting you know, people running VPN farms out of you know, somewhere, you know, some third world country to get those incentives. Yeah, I worked in market research for a number of years, so I'm well aware of most of the issues that you were just talking about, and probably a few more as well. And where can people find you after this if they want to talk to you about pricing or just catch up or maybe find out about some of the countries you went to on your 18-month holiday? Yeah, well, I blog regularly on my website at producttranquility.com, trying to demystify this world of pricing for everyone else. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn at Dan Balkowski. I'm always happy to connect with folks there. Excellent. I'll link it in and put it in the show notes, and hopefully you'll get a few people coming over and finding out all about this value-based stuff. Well, that's been a fantastic chat. Obviously, really appreciate you taking the time and sharing some of your thoughts and experience. Hopefully, we can stay in touch. But as for now, thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much, Jason. I really enjoyed it. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and make sure you share it with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night. <laughs>